Before we, though, jump into our last and final text in this teaching, this final teaching in Mark, we have to address something that we didn't take time for on Easter. In many of your Bibles, there's a notation suggesting that the final 12 verses of Mark might not be in the original text. Now, notations like this can cause a bit of alarm at first. You know, you might be worried, like, hey, is somebody messing with my Bible? You know, don't be, don't be touching my Bible. But I'm actually very grateful for this little notation here. It gives us another chance to celebrate the reliability of the scriptures. What we hold in our hands, in our Bibles, is what was originally written. And this is highlighted by the fact that notations like this one are very rare in our New Testaments. And they're rare because most of the New Testament is without a doubt what was originally recorded. That said, though, this section is under dispute. And the reason for this, I won't bore you with the details, but the reason for this is that two of our oldest Greek copies of Mark do not contain this section, and neither do about a hundred others in various languages. Additionally, about one-third of the last 12 verses of Mark have vocabulary that is brand new to the whole book of Mark. And some ancient authors, people like Eusebius or Jerome from the third and fourth centuries, did not have this section at their disposal. It wasn't in their Bibles, as best we can tell. But on the other hand, many do believe that this belongs in the New Testament. Many early Christian writers refer to this passage in their writings. Even in the second century, in the 100s, men like Papias, Justin Martyr, and Irenaeus all quoted from this passage in Mark chapter 16. And even though two of our oldest and most reliable manuscripts do not contain it, which I mentioned already, the overwhelming majority of our ancient manuscripts do include this passage. At the very least, this is an add-on that circulated amongst the early church. If that's the case, it's an addendum to the awkward end of Mark's gospel, which would abruptly end at the end of verse 8, after the women meet the angel at the tomb. And perhaps Mark wanted to end his book that way, an intentional mic drop kind of conclusion to the book, forcing his readers to imagine the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Uh, maybe Mark got that far and then died a martyr's death. He was a Christian after all, and persecution did exist during his time. And perhaps the original ending was damaged on the papyrus on which Mark wrote. Or perhaps, as I personally suspect and believe, the ending that we have is the one that Mark wrote. Now, I'm not a scholar, but even though the earliest manuscripts don't have it, the earliest Christians did have it. They talk about it in their writings. And it's hard for me to imagine Mark concluding his gospel with the women at verse 8. And above all this is the evidence that God has well preserved all his other books, and I think he did the same with this one. Now that said, before I move further, one might be worried that there are major or new doctrines found in this section. But let me assure you, nothing in this section is new. No major doctrine stands on this passage alone. You can find most of what's recorded here in these verses 
elsewhere in the New Testament. So I think we're on safe ground studying this section of scripture together today. But I also want you to be encouraged. All of this that I'm telling you, and I'm sorry if I'm boring you with these details today, but all of this should help you understand that the New Testament writings circulated very early on in the church's life, very early on. They were quoting from this particular passage. This helps us understand that the first, by the first decades of the second century, this section was widely known and received as a foundation for preaching, for mission, and for teaching. It had gotten, them, gotten to them at an early date. And the reason this is impressive is because some people suggest that Christianity didn't spread or was unknown until many centuries after Christ. And passages like this help us understand that that's not the case at all. Even this disputed text was circulating amongst the early church very early on after the time of Christ. Quickly, the New Testament and other passages around it had been written and communicated to the church. Now, as for this passage, the backdrop is Galilee. Jesus told his disciples to meet him there after he rose from the dead, and now after presenting himself alive to them for 40 days, it's time for him to depart to the Father. And before he left, he gave them directions. And that's what we're gonna look at today in this last teaching. Let's start by looking at the commission he gives to them in verse 15 and 16. It says, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now before reading further, let's just pause right here. This passage of scripture is often called the Great Commission. Jesus sent his disciples into the world to preach the gospel. He invited them into his mission. Now, I want to be clear that this mission was not the natural disposition of these disciples. You know, they had grown up thinking that the Messiah Christ would be a national hero, a deliverer for Israel, exclusively for Israel. The nations, or the whole creation, as Jesus says here in Mark's passage, they were a frightful collection of the condemned in the Jewish mindset at that time. The prophet Jonah didn't want to preach to the nations, and many ancient Israelites followed Jonah's pattern and heartbeat. But here comes Jesus telling his disciples to go into all the world to proclaim the gospel to all the nations, to the whole creation. Everyone, in other words, must hear about Jesus. Jesus died as the king of the Jews by the instigation of the Jewish religious authorities and at the hand of the Roman Empire. It was as if when Jew and Gentile agreed together on his crucifixion, the message was clear. I, Jesus is saying, am dying for everyone's sins. The Jews might have said, his blood be on us and our children to Pilate, but his blood was shed for all of us. All of our sins put Jesus on the cross, and now he tells his men to go into the whole world preaching 
his good news. And that's what the gospel is. It's good news. And this good news starts with the bad news of humanity's despair and brokenness and deadness because of sin. But Jesus took the punishment that should have been ours to give us the life that belongs to him. The good news is that Jesus came, lived, died, was buried, and rose for us and our, so, so that our sins could be forgiven. And this must be broadcast. And those early disciples, they heard this word from Jesus, and they did what he said. They most certainly proclaimed the message of the gospel. It's interesting, some historians think that half of Jerusalem's 200,000 citizens received Jesus before it was destroyed in 70 AD. Half the population there in Jerusalem becoming Christians. But of course, these early believers went far beyond the confines of Jerusalem with the glorious hope of Christ. They went into territories that were given over to paganism and upside down moral systems. They went into city-states that were steeped in Greek philosophy, civilizations like ours that deny the obvious nature of the creator and the created order around us. They went into these places and they preached Jesus. And by the way, the gospel is still the message that Christians must preach today. We still have a world to go into and proclaim the glorious good news of Jesus too. It's different than their world. The world they went into had never heard of Jesus' name. And yes, there are people on this planet, far too many of them, frankly, who still haven't heard the name of Jesus. But many people have heard his name and have preconceived notions or ideas about him. So our duty as believers is to faithfully represent and report the true Jesus and his gospel to our world. Now, much of our modern proclamation happens in person and from pulpits throughout the everyday flow of life. You know, we're all in contact with friends and family members, co-workers, you know, nearly every day of our lives. And we must stay fresh and ready to proclaim the gospel when the opportunity arises. We must look for opportunities and even make opportunities to proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done for us, proclaim his good news. We must give a reason for the hope that is within us. But there must also be times where outside the flow of normal life, we make conscious efforts to evangelize. You know, some people have a gift of evangelism. For others, it's a discipline. And for many, it's both, a gift and a discipline. But Christians should be have lives that are filled with things like missions trips, invitations to gospel preaching events and churches, and the direct sharing of our faith. They should be filled with efforts to love our neighbor, which will inevitably lead to opportunities to share Jesus. But the mission to share the gospel with all of creation also occurs in the context of what we spend much or most of our time doing, our workplaces. You know, we should not be those who drive up to our jobs perpetually late in a car that is covered with Christian bumper stickers. Instead, we must be the best workers, the most ethical leaders, and the most principled staff members. 
Our organizations must be better because of our presence. This brand of work leads to opportunities to share what Jesus has done for us. And I should also say this. This mission to declare the gospel to all nations requires our finances as well. We must financially invest in the kingdom of God because the Bible says that preachers of the gospel are worthy of their wages. I can think of no better investment than the kingdom of God. When everything else melts away, fades away, loses its value, the kingdom of God will remain. Okay, but before moving on in our passage, you know, we want to preach the gospel to all nations. I think I should also talk about the importance of baptism. Jesus mentions it here. He said in verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, this does not mean that those who aren't baptized are saved. You could get how you might think that. Jesus said those who believe and are baptized will be saved. But Jesus corrected the thought that what he meant was you have to believe and then also get baptized in order to be saved by saying in verse 16, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. In other words, it's a lack of belief, not a lack of baptism, a lack of belief that condemns a person. It's belief that leads to salvation and saved people, they should get baptized. You see, the idea that salvation by comes by baptism is anathema to scripture. It's totally contrary to the Bible. If baptism was required for salvation, then we are justified by works instead of the work of Christ. If baptism was required for salvation, then every single mention of faith in the Bible should also include a command to be baptized. But that's not how the Bible is written. Only a few passages could give someone the idea that maybe I need to be baptized also to be saved. But all those passages are corrected by the immediate context and by the other scriptures that help us understand that saving faith without baptism is what brings us into the body of Christ. But that said, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Baptism is important. Here's Jesus saying, we've got to believe and also be baptized. You see, Jesus died on the cross and he was buried and he rose to new life. And when you are water baptized as a believer in Jesus, you are picturing how what happened to him also happened to you. That your old nature died and was buried with Jesus is pictured when you plunge into the water. And that you have new life in Jesus is pictured when you emerge from the water. You're no longer dry like when you came into the baptistry, but you are wet, just as you are no longer dead in sins, but you're changed now by Jesus, you're alive in Christ. So baptism is a major step in your walk with Jesus. He said that those who believe and are baptized are saved, and real belief will lead you to be baptized. You see, belief or saving faith is not only intellectual belief, but emotional and volitional, or of your will. This means that you will first believe the facts of the gospel, but you'll also desire Jesus emotionally and become willing to abandon your old life so that you can follow Jesus. 
But what does it say? If the first thing that he asks someone to do, they won't do. Things aren't off to a good start. So getting baptized is step one in the Christian life. You see, it's a way for you to blast out the news that Jesus died for you. It's a way to testify of his work in your life. It's a way to tell the church that you are in the body of Christ because of what Christ has done for you. It's a way for you to out yourself as a Jesus follower. Now for our church, we've actually started recently this year holding water baptisms on the last Sunday of the month. And so far, I think it's working well. It's unfortunate that the online church or the first service can't see them, but people there at the final service on Sunday are able to celebrate these people that are being baptized. You know, sometimes nobody signs up. Sometimes a handful of people sign up. Sometimes one person signs up to be baptized. You know, I I get it. We, We actually live in a tough place, I think, for the gospel. You know, droves of people aren't coming to Christ in the community that we live in, at least not yet. But if even one person needs to be baptized, the angels of heaven rejoice over that new life. So if you're a believer and you have yet to broadcast what he's done for you through or by being water baptized, you gotta sign up and get baptized as quickly as you can. Go to calvary.com and get yourself plugged in to be baptized next time we hold them. But let's go on in our passage and see the second half of this movement. It says in verse 17, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. All right, let's be honest. This passage is likely the reason that many wonder if this should really be included in Mark's gospel. I mean, many people see things like demons and tongues and invincibly picking up snakes and drinking poison, and they just say, ugh, that's weird, and they run in the other direction. But listen, these disciples became apostles, and they did have power over the demonic realm. They were given the ability to pray to God in previously unknown languages. They were protected from things like poisonous snakes while they traveled for the gospel. And they were often used as instruments of God's miraculous healings as they went about the world telling people about Christ. And as much as I do believe that all the gifts of the Spirit Even the super, supernatural ones, they're all supernatural, but some just seem a little more supernatural to us. I believe all of those gifts can happen, are available today. But as much as I believe that, I do confess that the apostles and their generation, they watched many of these these things occur at a high rate. Hebrews 2 tells us that the gospel spread when God 
bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 2.12. He said, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. You see, it seems that God was miraculously helping these men in a very special way. And those miracles helped them launch the gospel into the world. I'm not saying that they worked miracles every five minutes. You know, we sometimes forget that the book of Acts, uh, the, uh, the book that records the early spread of Christianity, is a history of 30 years. You know, monumental events were recorded by Luke during those 30 years in the book of Acts. And many of them included a supernatural element. So I don't think that we should conclude by looking at the book of Acts that everyday Christian life was just a continuous stream of miracle after miracle, but that God bore witness at key times and at key places by breaking in with the supernatural. That said, I don't believe there's any good reason to think that the miraculous stopped with the first church. This is debated obviously, in our modern times and in the modern church. And obviously, the fact that there is a debate must mean that the miraculous doesn't happen all that often or else we probably really wouldn't debate it because we would have witnessed it with our own eyes. But I believe that the gifts of the Spirit, all of them, are available today. They are best used as a way to spread the gospel of Christ. And perhaps that's part of the reason why we don't see them maybe as much as we'd like to is because we tend to use them or want them for self-focus rather than kingdom and gospel expansion. But these gifts are helpful. They're not supposed to be the platform for a ministry or as a focus or the pursuit or the goal. They're not an end in and of themselves, but a means to an end. They're needed and helpful for the work of the church. And I say that they're needed because I think we're up against it. You know, many people are bound in thoughts and beliefs and practices that completely disable them from considering Christ. You know, I'm not one to pine for the past, but it's clearly not like it used to be. You know, even in our nation's recent history, there have been people who went to church just because it gave them standing in their community, but they didn't believe in Jesus. Many of them adopted even Christian morality and practices, but didn't have saving faith in Jesus. They were lost. They didn't know Christ. They were on to, off to an eternity without him, but they just didn't vehemently vocalize their rejection of Jesus. But we live in an age now where the rejection of Jesus is often more overt, People are just as lost today as they were back in the 1950s, but now the rejection of Christianity is more vocal. So for someone to come to Christ, it takes a lot. Ingredients like desperation due to trauma or personal failure, disillusionment over the philosophies of our age, you know, believing something and then seeing what it gets you, or depression due to the God-shaped hole in the human heart are all helpful for drawing someone to Jesus. But even then, it's a big deal for someone to turn around and submit to Jesus in our modern times. It almost feels 
like it would take a miracle. Like the supernatural must flex into our natural world to get the job done. But that's precisely what our passage tells us. Jesus spoke, Jesus ascended, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, and in verse 20, then they went out and preached everywhere Well, the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. They went, and Jesus went with them from his post in heaven. This is how it works. As Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13, he said, you got to work out your own salvation. You have it. Work it out. Live it out with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are working it out. God is working with us. I think Luke said it well. After writing of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he wrote the book of Acts, a second book, the book about the church's early days. He started that book this way. In the first book, he said, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. In Luke's mind, The early life, Jesus' early life, was only the beginning of what Jesus did and taught. He still, in Luke's mind, did things and taught things. And he recorded those all through the book of Acts. I believe Jesus still does things and still teaches things today. He joins his people as they launch out in faith with him. And that early church was one of power. I believe the same power is available today for those who pray, those who are holy, those who walk in faith. And I hope to be one of those people. So in conclusion to this book, Jesus came. To him, our world was further gone than any of the people that he raised back to life in the Gospels. We're not newly dead on this planet like the little 12-year-old girl in Capernaum in Mark 5 that Jesus raised back to life. We're not a day dead, like the young man that Jesus raised back to life in the funeral procession of Luke 7. Nor are we three days dead, like Lazarus in John 11, who had already been buried and embalmed. No, we're, on this planet, dead dead. And Jesus came to the lifeless corpse of this world and spoke words of life. Only he could speak them because he had risen after death. Resurrection power was and is his. He consumed all that killed us by dying for our sins. And now he speaks to this dead world, telling it to rise back to life through his glorious gospel. And he uses his church to preach that resurrection power, the glorious good news that humankind doesn't have to be stuck in death forever. We can live and we can turn and trust in Christ. I told you at the beginning of our study of Mark's gospel that our theme would be follow the servant savior. That's, by the way, how Mark has presented Jesus as the servant savior, as the savior who serves or the servant who saves. He said it this way in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came 
not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But though the book paints Jesus as the servant who saves, it also presents him as asking his people to do the same thing. Of course, we can't die for anyone's sins, but now we're equipped with the gospel. So we must get outside ourselves, lay down our lives, and devote time and energy and resources to the spread of the knowledge of Christ. You know, we prayed at the beginning of our study for God to open our eyes so we could discover Jesus afresh. And personally, I believe that he's answered that prayer. I know Christ has shaken me to the, to the core over this last year. And it's been so refreshing to see again who he is. And now, after studying this book, reading of his life and death and burial and resurrection, I'm ready to launch out into further expansion of a gospel-centered and gospel-preaching community of faith. I believe he wants us to do this together. So let's follow together the servant Savior.